This episode is brought to you by the law offices of Rack, Pillory, and Thumbscrew. Does someone have something that belongs to you just because you temporarily mislaid it or weren't using it? Hey, here's a pen. I don't see someone claiming ownership. It must be mine now. Or, look, here's an entire continent that I, just me, have recently discovered. It's not completely delimited with fences. It must be mine now. You probably thought there's nothing you can do about it due to the famous case known as St. Memorius versus Finders Keepers. Well, Rack, Pillory, and Thumbscrew want you to know about the common law principle of theft by finding. Theft by finding happens when some larcenous nobody happens upon something that appears abandoned and takes it as their own without establishing that it is not lost or merely that the owner isn't around at the moment. You have rights. Imagine you've been looking for where you parked your car for an hour and some goofball has said, look, someone left a late Cadillac here. I guess they didn't want it. Oh well. So come to the law offices of Rack, Pillory, and Thumbscrew to get back what belongs to you. And now when our listeners use the promo code reread, one word, they can get a free assessment on tracking down a lost family member to see if there's any inheritance due them. And thank you, Rack, Pillory, and Thumbscrew for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. It's been a very active two weeks, Craig. Yeah, because we haven't been gone for two weeks. We had a little <laughs> surprise sneak in there. That was pretty cool. Well, all the more. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of feedback for Chapter 21. It's all been favorable. The Hut in the Jungle that we did with Mark Aramini. A lot of love for that one. I hope all our bonus interviewees come back and do a chapter with us. Yeah. And Mark was, by the way, upset a little bit that nobody was telling him he was totally wrong, which seemed out of character, <laughs> I have to admit. But he did tell me, he's like, nobody's arguing with me. Um, usually he just wants to be taken, you know, taken as true. And so yeah. I thought he'd be happy about that. But I think he was hoping for a little more, a little more excuse to push back. A little bit. After years of getting pushback on the earth list, I'm sure he doesn't feel like he's being loved if he's <laughs> not getting people denouncing him. Speaking of Mark, he did an interview with Master Olton's library. Yes. That was pretty great. I posted a link to that in the show notes. So lots of good stuff in there, too, about um, Mark's general approach to things. Like, I know a mm -hmm. lot of people liked his talk in general about how he felt about New Sun. And so he does mm -hmm. have a whole bunch of things in there. He has some some good close readings of certain parts of different stories. But, uh, yeah, it was nice to see him really talk about his general approach to the works. Yeah, right. Oh, and speaking of that, uh, during the chapter, I tipped my hand that Book of the New Sun isn't my favorite wolf story. And honestly, it you know never has been. Goonhands on Reddit asked about that. Uh, so my ranking of the top five from less favorite to most favorite has been really for a long time, Book of the New Sun, Book of the Short Sun, The Soldier of the Mist, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and the Book of the Long Sun. And Craig, I think yours are from the top five, from least favorite to most favorite, is uh, Book of the New Sun, Book of the New Sun, Book of the New Sun, <laughs> Book of the New Sun, and then Book of the New Sun on top. Well, you know, 
it, I, uh, yeah, fair enough. It's, uh, <laughs> it's probably like that. Although I think one thing that might be different is I'd actually have wizard Knight somewhere in my top five. Oh yeah. Um, which I, it might, honestly, I hate to say this and this definitely makes me feel not like a true hardcore wolf fan, but it might actually edge out, um, Latro. Wow. Um, for me, I know Shut your mouth just because, and I think the only reason for that is because Latro can be so hard. Mm. not hard not hard in the confusing sort of land across kind of way but just hard in how much work you have to do to sort of look <laughs> things up and keep things in mind but i don't know it might yeah. be changing over time not that i disliked it loved it loved it loved it but mm-hmm. um but yeah I, wizard knight actually still grabs me i have problems with it but it still has a world that just draws me in it has a lot of love out there actually mm-hmm. it does it does but one thing I didn't know, I didn't know that New Sun was not your favorite when we started this. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just assumed. And so, I mean, you told me pretty soon after. And then I was kind of like, oh, well, thanks for going along. But It's a wolf novel. I like it. I do like it. But it's just that I always felt that Wolf had not played fair with the reader, that he'd taken too many pieces off the board. And there was no way to figure out what was going on. If everyone had haggled over this thing for decades and I didn't feel like anyone had moved forward. And, you know, now, I mean, honestly, I, Oh, well, maybe it is kind of, <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if I had understood it the way I feel like I understand it now, it would probably be way up there. It might even be my favorite. The way I understand this, uh, the book of the sun. Now I see as a very tour de force kind of novel. It's very different from the way most science fiction writers, most anybody, any kind of writers mm-hmm. write. And I probably still see Fifth Head of Cerberus as more, as a bridge even farther than that. But it, but still, I mean, it's moving up. Fifth Head is in certain ways a lot more boundary pushing in terms of formal stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. New Sun in a lot of ways is playing with a lot of old tropes, but is still following a ton of tropes at the same time of, of genre books and things like that. So. Well, structurally from the narrative as well. I mean, the way I understand it, I get that other people don't see it that way, but the way I understand it, the idea of a novel that's an aftermath of something that has happened that you can barely detect where there's essentially a, a story that's, written in there that the reader is supposed to figure out that mm-hmm. even though it's never spoken, that's pretty impressive. That's a different formal thing too. Yeah. But I mean, at this point, I'm not even sure though, I want to do earth, the new sun in five years. I'm going to pitch for <laughs> us to go straight to long sun. I think we could do a summary. Maybe. I don't know if, I mean, earth, the new sun would, it would benefit from a really close chapter by chapter thing. But at the same time, at that point, honestly, we'll see we'll see where we are in terms of enthusiasm. <laughs> I will. So, I would be so annoying though, because the whole thing. I feel like, oh well, the first variant theory explains it all. You don't need me. Go ahead and just just read it and keep that in mind. And I, the whole way through, I'll just be saying. And then you know, of course, the first variant theory, the first variant theory, the first variant. Theory, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> Well, that would be also a good way for me to push back on you in that one. And then we could find all the ways that it might not work or it would be different. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see. But that's oh, okay. That's a long way down the line. And I still for me, I still feel like Earth is a, a different it's a totally different aesthetic experience. That's and definitely true. Yeah. It 
I feel like you once it's there, you can't help but have that stuff when you're reading New Sun. But I still feel like they're different. They're different worlds. They're just different artistic worlds. Right. Also, if you're listening to this way out of time, in chronological time frame, our interview with the great Michael Swanwick came out a week ago. That was such a good interview. I'm sure it was due to us, Craig. For those <laughs> who said more like this, well, I'm not going to spill the beans, but we do have scheduled something really special. A couple of somethings. A couple really of special. somethings, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about them makes me squirm uncomfortably in my chair. So <laughs> Austin Beeman on Facebook, who started listening to the podcast with the first Severian episode and is now moving on to earlier ones, which is perfectly fine. The podcast sheriff says you can start this thing anywhere. But remember, this podcast is an exploration. So in those earlier episodes, we're scratching our heads over some things that we feel like we've answered at least i do so back to austin he offered a first severian theory the what if our severian the severian of this book is a work of fiction by the first severian i said that's an interesting theory but craig i'm sure you're proud of me i asked him how would this theory if true make this a better book (laughs) <laughs> I like. I know you, you <laughs> got in my headspace, and you're doing that. <laughs> so Austin admitted, you know, he wasn't 100 sure how that would be, but he said it might explain away some of the viciousness of our Sev that peaks around the edges of the story in inopportune moments, and that could be the first Severian's real personality coming through. Could be, um, and and that also gets into how you read Severian's character. And I think one thing I said on there was that I actually feel like it's important for Severian to be pretty severely flawed in places and to overcome that, because otherwise it seems like the test in the end isn't as much of a high stakes test. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one reason why. But also, it's just it's a good story to see this naive little kid hopefully grow a little bit mm-hmm. over time, um, but. That could be an interesting way to add a layer to the idea of, you know, we already have Severian as an older person telling the story about himself as a younger person. Mm-hmm. So you already do have sort of two versions of Severian there. And there are plenty of times when uh, narrator Severian sort of looks back on his younger self and is, you know, ashamed or, or cluck clucking or talking about how naive he was or things like that. Sometimes with nostalgia, sometimes with nostalgia for things he maybe shouldn't be nostalgic for, but nonetheless. Um, but yeah, so having then first Severian be telling a story about someone else that would take that idea in a real extreme direction. Right. And it would definitely make for, like you said, it would mean that the formal quality of the book is even weirder than <laughs> but, yeah. I don't really see any textual evidence of that. It's a fun mind game to play, mm-hmm. but I don't really think there's much in the book that would uh, that would lead us to see that. But he's not done theory spinning. That's he's right. just finished the chapter 11 episode, the one about Severian's elevation ceremony. He's considered all the theories that we pitched about the maid. Is she just a local girl? Is she a robot? Uh, He's considered my universal Catherine theory. And he's got one of his own. Maybe she's an equester. I don't know. But, you know, personally, I'm already too far in the middle of this to claim to be a non-biased judge. (laughs) What do you think? 
Um, I actually kind of think that maybe there's something to that just because if you have that scene in Earth where the woman is crying, screaming, being pulled down the hallway, mm-hmm. that maybe would make sense if you have an Eidolon who's brought out year after year or, or you know, that's a sort of horrible <laughs> situation to be in, it seems to me. So there could be something to that. Um, I don't know, because the other thing is that the, we just don't really get much of a sense of a personality of Catherine in that chapter and right. in chapter 11. And so it's hard to know what that would be. And of course, I think that's another one where doing that would start to raise all kinds of other questions about, well, where does the technology come from? It seems like only the Hyrodules are really able to make Aquasters or or Eidolons or something. Mm-hmm. You know, would the torturers actually have the power to do this over and over again? You know, who knows? Right. But it's such an odd thing and there's so much mystery surrounding Catherine. Why not throw that on the pile of the theories? Sure. Also on Facebook, Gary Owens wondered how many actual Severians there are in the Book of the New Sun and the Earth of the New Sun. Now, this isn't actually a, a first Severian theory. It's it's not even controversial. It's a multiple Severian theory. We all know Severian dies twice, at least, in Earth of the New Sun. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you at least have three. If you mm-hmm. were going to add first Severian, that would be another one. But then that gets into the whole thing about how many cycles of this are we talking about? Are we talking about entire universe cycles? Are we talking about different timeline cycles where different branches create different mm-hmm. ones? Um, hard to say. Yeah. But you could also start to go through and think about, well, how many different places are there that maybe you have a Severian die or have a different version? You've got yeah. the the mausoleum Severian, you've got young boy Severian, you've got the the skull that he picks up at the bottom mm-hmm. of the guile in Earth. You've got, of course, the one that dies on Zadkiel's ship. You've got the one that dies in as Apupunchao. Then you've got the one that comes after that. Yeah, there's that's what are we getting up to? Six or seven? Yeah, I think, well, at that I think, point already. Uh, Let's go on Earth. This has eight. So there you go. Yeah. What am I missing? I'm trying to think what I'm missing now. Oh, well. I mean, there's eight, but there could be more. I mean, he's got the guy, he's got the one that, at least the one that's, uh, that builds the mausoleum. Yeah. And that, I think to answer that though, it gets into what you think is going on in the bigger story. Like, do you Mm -hmm. think this is universe cycles? Do you think this is different timelines? Like to, to answer that question, you kind of have to have a whole lot of structure of how you think the whole story is working. Right. Yeah. And how much he's being manipulated so that you mm-hmm. have all of these, every time he dies, they just leapfrog into another equester. Yeah. Anyway, to tell you the truth, I do have a first Severian theory that connects the first known time he dies on Zadkiel's ship, but I won't talk about it here. <laughs> Save that for when we do or don't talk about Earth of the New Sun. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ian uh, Kozik reached out to us on email. He's roped his friend into this endless labyrinth to read the book of the new sun along with his reread. And now he's got his grandfather involved as well. He has theories about megatherians that I'm going to save until we pass through the piteous gate. I love doing this podcast, Craig. There's so many theories, so much to consider thanks everyone. Oh, uh, discovered recently that the something awful forum still has a very much living wolf thread. So I think that was cool. You pointed that out to me and I had an account on that. I, I was trying to figure it out like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, way back in the <laughs> day. And I forget what the name of the really, really weird forum was. It was one that was just all surreal 
<laughs> sort of meme culture before it was meme culture. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute, but I had, I had an account on there and played with all that, but yeah, it was cool to see that there's a lot of people talking in there and we even got a couple shout outs, both, both right. good and bad, both <laughs> <laughs> some agreement and disagreement, but that's good. That's the point. Another really awesome news. Michael Andre Driussi has a new book out. Yep. Which not many people I think knew was coming out. No, no, I, I didn't know it was coming out this fast anyway. No, no. I know he had mentioned to us that he was working on something like that, but we had no no idea that it was quite that done. Yeah. It's another chapter by chapter reference guide, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, let's see, we're co- he's covering um, Operation Ares, Peace, Fifth Head of Cerberus. What else? Devil in a Forest. A Devil in a Forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So the first four. Yeah, I'm anxious to see that. I've. Devil in a forest just strikes me. Is there something wrong there going on? I have a list of questions here, as I always do, but you would think in a book like that, that they wouldn't be that hard to figure out. Somebody on um, either Facebook or Reddit somewhere was like, okay, that's nice and all. Why don't you do one for the last books, which nobody knows what's going on. I understand the sentiment, but yeah, I get it. Still, those are, yeah, but those are awesome books and it's about time someone did it. Oh, we also have a new listener. Well, he's from Turkey, and I reached out to him about how to pronounce his name, and he said he wasn't sure how an English speaker would pronounce it. So he asked me to just go with it and see how it came out of my mouth. So here goes. Korkut Gule reached out to us on Facebook. He says, I came to Shadow of the Torturer late after Fifth Head of Cerberus, which I came to after I read the Gormenghast trilogy, and also the Tain by China Mievel. More importantly... I came as a non-Christian, non-English speaker, not even close as a language family. I did not have the frame of reference many of you had. I was totally disoriented, befuddled by the language, lost but never alone, probably pronounced every name wrong but we'll never know, missed almost every clue. Only after Lexicon Earthus did I have an inkling of what this was, which makes an undertaking like this podcast all the more valuable for me. Suddenly, you can see the different wavelengths. So thank you. Very cool. Have you ever read The Tain? I haven't read that. I've read a bunch of other stuff by him, but not The Tain. In fact, no. I was just talking to somebody the other day about how Land Across and Meaville um, City and the City seems like they ought to be good going together kinds mm. of things. Different weird surveillance state kind of things. And, mm. Yeah. Well, uh, Corkett says it has mirrors and also a fish. He says that most of the commentary thinks it borrows from Lewis Carroll, but he's positive it's a wolf. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. In an earlier post, he was finding connections, which makes him a promising contributor, I think. He said, while I was listening to the Joan Gordon episode, I realized something. It was about the multidimensional nature of the libraries. The same library concept exists in Terry Pratchett's Discworld. The library of the Unseen University spans multiple dimensions and multiple timelines. Yeah, sure. That works. And Corkut, I'm sorry, Corkut, but now that's your name. He's not content to be a consumer. He's experimenting with digitally transcribing the episodes, Craig. And you've been urging me to do a pale version of this. You see, everything I say here, even... What I'm saying right now is typed out beforehand. I write out a summary of each chapter that operates as the skeleton for the episode. So, Craig, you've been wanting me to lightly edit my summaries and post them since this might be useful to people. Corkett takes it to the next level. He's working on getting the entire episodes transcribed. 
He's still working on getting it right, but I think that's really great. It'll be useful to me to remember when I've said something already. And I think the one cool thing about that too is when we started, I remember somebody asked us, even kind of challenged us a little bit, are we going to have transcripts for hearing impaired? And I looked into like Dragon software and some of the other things. I couldn't find anything that I thought would really be efficient, but it, it was a really great point and good idea. But if, yeah. if he can find something that actually does that really well, then that'd be amazing, especially if it yeah. doesn't take too much editing. Um, yeah, so that would be wonderful for that. As far as your summaries go, yeah, I just think it's, you know, I mean, hey, Michael Andrews, you just published a chapter by chapter summary and we've yeah. got even more detailed summaries. So why not? Right. Well, I, I doubt, I don't know whether my summaries are as that insightful, but uh, we should always put them up. Any, anything that would be any helpful to people out there. Yeah. I obviously do not write everything out in advance because you can tell I'm, <laughs> I have notes. I have plenty of notes, but I uh, I riff a little more. Right. <laughs> on Facebook, Adam Roth has some interesting speculations on whether there could be a connection between Asapego and Dr. Talos. You know, given that his role with the two Herodules and Talos's role with Boldanders are kind of similar, and they're both artificial. I don't know if that's what Wolf intended, but tell us did sort of fall off the map in Earth of the New Sun. He's well, he's mentioned a few times, but that's it. And right. yeah, and I think it's intriguing just because we know that Ospego is an android or a robot. In fact, I think there are suggestions even that he's just a straight up robot, not even, you know, an, an artificial human or something. Right. But who knows what that means? Really? The one thing I was trying to remember, and I meant to go back and check, but is if when they take their masks off, if there's anything even remotely Fox-like about the strange, creepy alien faces that are yeah, under there. Yeah, that would be perfect if Ospego had a Fox reference. Right. That That's where the clue would be. But I don't know. I don't think I don't even know if they identify who has which mask underneath. I know that Familimus, when you take the scary mask off, Familimus is beautiful. But beyond that, I don't really remember any of them being particularly identified. I got to go check that, though. Yeah. Well, he does take care of the other two, right? Just like he takes care of Baldanders. It's kind yeah. of his role. And, you know, I was thinking if. Dr. Talos were not with Baldanders. He'd actually be a good guy. He's designed to be a good guy, not mm -hmm. to worry about money, to be loyal to his friends. And there's also the story about the robots or the AIs that go off and come back mm -hmm. really with a kind of sort of moral caretaking right. message that Syriaca tells. Um, which we've at least I've always taken as something of a metaphorical analog to the Hyroduels or the Hyros sort of through different timelines, but maybe there's something to that too. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's still Talus, obviously, but <laughs> but I don't know. There is something about the the role of artificial creatures being caretakers mm -hmm. and helpers that yeah that might be worth following up on so yeah we're getting a lot of theories about things we haven't covered yet i sense that people are antsy for us to move along but we won't my whole intention when you proposed this reread craig was that i was going to carefully consider every sentence reference illusion scene on the earth list readers would post to make their cases they'd shine up their little glass baubles and underplay counter arguments we're going to sift every grain until we consider every imaginable reading, and then we're going to make our decisions if we can. So it's probably time to get our feet wet. All righty. Oh, 
wet. Okay, I'm dense. <laughs> it, it suddenly clicked. I'm like, oh, wait, I know what we're talking about this week. Okay. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> That's cool. Chapter 22, Dorcas. So let's recap. Still exactly two weeks since the Feast of Holy Catherine. Mm-hmm. 24 hours since Severian left the Citadel. Seven chapters and about five hours since Severian went to breakfast with Talos and Baldanders. <laughs> with the cloth from the Pelerines of Cathedral unwittingly tucked away in Severian's saber tash, they are at the Botanical Garden to cut an Avern flower for Severian's duel that evening. They've been to the Sand Garden and the Jungle Garden. Now they are in the Garden of Sleep. When Severian heard of the Avern flower, he imagined them growing in beds built into benches. That's what they had at the conservatory in the Citadel. Mm-hmm. And when he heard of the Botanic Gardens, he imagined a park like the Necropolis. Yep. By the way, I keep harping on first sentences, but I think it's really cool. And I, I haven't noticed, I've never noticed it before, but... So we know that Dorcas is always going to have a flower in her hair. And here in her chapter, the first thing talks about flowers. Now it's talking about Avern flowers, which are not the kind of flowers that mm-hmm. she's always going to have. It's another point where I had never realized before how Wolf in these first sentences always has something either thematic that ties right back to it. It's like a little tag that I think is really cool. But the Garden of Sleep is, quote, a dark lake in an infinite fin that is a swamp. Mm-hmm. They are walking through mucky ground covered in sedge, essentially, you know, marsh plants, weeds, right. that kind of thing. And the fact that he calls it an infinite fin goes back to his point before about like, why can I not see the edges right. of the sections that before he's been in one place and as you keep saying, yeah, but they open out, which gives makes it seem weird. <laughs> but now they're in a place that doesn't just open out. I mean, the way I always imagine this, the lake is probably bigger than the botanic gardens looked like from outside. Like that's kind of how I always imagine it. Yeah. It takes a long time to walk around this lake mm-hmm. so much so that he would prefer to find a boat to take them straight way across. Yeah. And there's a cold, stiff breeze blowing relentlessly quote before it reached the sea. So Severian has given up trying to pretend that they're indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way I take this too, that it's no longer, a suggestion that the way he starts to describe things here, I mean, yeah, the word infinite wind before it reached the sea, you know, how far apparently they can mm-hmm. see. Yeah. That he's satisfied himself that something else. Yeah. Is going on. Yeah. In this case, it's not like the trees are on either side and they can't see very far around. Now they can look up, they can look out. He can see just the little whites of the Avern flowers across the other end of yeah. the lake. So yeah. where is this then? If it's, if he's actually being transported somewhere. Okay. Where is this? Well, here's the way I think of it. You remember the story with Domnina? Mm -hmm. You've got the little fish flying around there. And he has this description of what he does is that things don't travel through the mirrors. What they do is there's like a reflection on this side. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit hokey, but it's also imaginable. The point is that a reflection of something from another world, another timeline, another universe, however you want to say it, Mm -hmm. is created on this side. And that is, I think, essentially what is happening here. You've got somewhere, another timeline, another world, another time where all these things exist. This place exists. But by the same token, it's being recreated right here in all the space. And it's not just 
physically here, but all of the movement in time is also recreated here so that someone can come to this swamp, this lake, and that's apparently been transported from someplace else, some other time, some other place on the planet, and plant these Avern flowers and they'll grow here. That's interesting because I'm I hadn't necessarily been thinking of it that way before, but that might make more sense. Because if I think about them just traveling, like if what's really going on is they just are stepping through whatever the the consequence of the mirrors and going somewhere else, then it doesn't seem like like in the in the jungle garden, then they wouldn't be kind of there for someone and not kind of there for Marie, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. like that would make more sense that it's sort of like this weird reflection doubling of a place rather than just taking you from here to there. Right. That maybe explains a little bit more why, Oh shoot. I've already forgotten his name. Why, why <laughs> Dr. Mann can agree, but his wife or can see them, but right. She can't. Huh? They're, they're basically, they brought another world, another time. And then they're injecting their own world and time in it. They're both overlapping here. And that works better with mirrors. Yeah. Right. So that, that actually for me brings up all kinds of questions then about what travel is like in, like if they're using that same technology and, and Inari says that, you know, this is, this is an analogy to what space travel is like, just like the, Mm -hmm. the flower, the flyers to the toy flyers. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It sounds to me, if I was to, extrapolate based on that, that what happens when you travel using these mirrors is that you're still, you know, where you started, but your reflection is recreated someplace else. Jonas disappears though. That's true. When you walk into the mirrors, something else happens. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I believe Domnina went into those mirrors. Uh, But what, what came out was, Someone who went into those mirrors from another world, from another timeline, a, a parallel universe. Hmm. I'll have to think about that because that actually brings up all kinds of questions. And we don't necessarily need to, we're going to get a long way away from the Avern flower and Dorcas here. <laughs> well, we can always inject it into some other chapter. Especially, yeah, when we get there, because that's, that's promising for some ideas about why, about leaving the universe. Okay, yeah, I got a lot of ideas, yeah. but I'll, I'll save them for later. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I'm holding them in reserve. When we get to see the witches at the end of Conciliator and the question of what are they doing here? I really believe that that relates. Yeah. And was Severian actually traveling? Because there it definitely seems like, yeah, it's almost like a, the way they describe the dust forming thing. It's almost like a hologram of something right. rather than the actual transport. Huh. Okay, cool. Interesting. So, all right. They're walking down a track, uh, a path with rushes, you know, reeds, uh, cattails on either side. Occasionally birds fly by black against a misted sky. Severian is telling Asia all about Thecla, knowledge that she will use against him later in the Claw of the Conciliator. Mm-hmm. When they get to the lake, the Averns are directly on the other side. From the distance, they show up as a smudge of white, like I said. Yeah, another emphasis on how how big this is. In yes. Asia explains that just like the necropolis, there are graves here but no monuments, mausoleums, coffins, or mortuary urns. The water 
which was the color of tea, has a property that keeps the corpses from decomposing. The water turns their skin to the consistency of fine, thin leather. So you can't tell how long a body has been there. The bodies are weighted by forcing lead shot down their throats, a fact that will come up in mm-hmm. sort of the liquor. By the way, that color of tea, that is so disgusting because it's <laughs> because it's person tea, right? <laughs> like it's, yeah. It's oh, I bet you is. that's right. I didn't even think of that. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. It's <laughs> just so good. So when you find out what it, what it actually means. And it's ice cold. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, there's be nothing fun about being in that water. So there's lead shots that are forced down their throat and then they're sunk with their positions mapped so that they can be reclaimed if anyone wants to look at them later. There are countries today where the dead are exhumed once a year, brought out, decorated, you know, by members of the family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, perhaps that's a tradition here, at least for some people, or it was. Especially if it's preserved, if, if it is mm-hmm. preserving them, then yeah, that would be the purpose is literally to go in and bring them up. Severian makes a comment that suggests that even as Autark, he's not really sure how the botanical gardens work, but he expresses doubt that it's all an illusion. He says, I would readily have sworn that there was no one within a league of where we stood, or at least if the segments of the glass building really confined the spaces they enclosed as they were supposed to within the borders of the Garden of Endless Sleep. But Asia had no sooner said what she did than the head and shoulders of an old man appeared over the top of some reeds a dozen paces off. So he's immediately correcting Asia's statement about the place being marked, this this old guy who shows up. He says, It is not true! Oh, no, they say so, but tis it right, he said in his finest Dick Van Dyke accent. <laughs> yeah, this is also the first time Wolf starts to pull out the real um, yeah. the real accents <laughs> in this book. But you're going to get tons more in Long Sun, but this right. is one of the few guys who really does it here. Aja's been walking around with her torn dress exposing her breast, and now she covers it up. She'll show less reserve later. The man is standing on a boat, pushing it along through the reeds with a pole. They couldn't see him through the tall reeds, but he could hear them talking. The image that we get of him seems to me and always has like Charon, mm-hmm. the boatman crossing the river Lethe, which right. is, seems like the image I think we're supposed to get right here because, I mean, this is a lake of death, the big water thing. They're going to have to buy or they don't buy passage, but they will get passage across. And it actually mm-hmm. does bring someone back from the dead. Um, you know, they're they're crossing crossing that point. But that's a good point. He doesn't take them across true, true is he sharon or is or is it um hildegren? hildegren who actually who eventually does that's i'm yeah i mean that's a good point i think i do think the imagery is intentional i mean it, it works really well at the very least we're obviously getting Dorcas has crossed over and coming back right and so certainly it's it's the right kind of image <laughs> well the guy wants to talk but Asia says more trouble we better go <laughs> and <laughs> Severian asked if he can tote them across the lake so they don't have to walk around. But the man says that they'd be too heavy. There's only room for him and the body of his wife on it. Cass is her name. And that's his nickname for his wife, Dorcas. 
The man, whom I suppose is Severian's paternal grandfather, mm-hmm. looks older even than Master Palamon. But if you start adding things up here, <laughs> he's probably only 60 years old, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But if you spend his whole life, you know, yeah, it's been a hard 60 around, years. It's been rough. The other right. thing, too, by the way, speaking of his relationship, he, he calls them you great folk. Um, would capsize us is one thing he says. Mm-hmm. Do you think by great there, do you think he means tall? Like, is he referring to he means big, Yeah, I think he means tall people. Although, is Ajia tall? Ajia is little. Well, that was one my one question. Um, and so I didn't know if it was great in the sense of a kind of, you know, just polite honorific, or if he actually meant you guys are tall, which could suggest that you know, Severian's, I mean, we know Dorcas is petite, but... Maybe he's just talking about Severian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know, but I'm thinking too about his you know, heritage, would that mean that Severian gets his height from Catherine's side rather than from? Yeah. Well, yeah, because I think, I, I, I think Owen is, is certainly no more than average height. That's what it would seem. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's not remarkable at the very least. Tall enough for his head um, to reach over the, the reach. Yeah. But. I'm, I'm operating currently under the assumption that Catherine was a kybit. So that works for me <laughs> because, you know, she's technically, a, an exultant. Yeah. Uh, she's technically or, or exultant clone, g- yeah. genetically, which probably means they're, they are naturally a little taller than average. They're just not giants. Yeah. Hmm. Just another point there that made me think if there's something you could tease out about yeah. where he gets his traits from and who. Yeah. But anyway, this man is so shrunk with age that Severian figures he weighs as much as a 10-year-old. The man wants to show Severian the document that details where his wife is sunk, Cass Dorcas. The document is a scroll. It has a name, which Severian seems to have paid no attention to because he's about to meet this person and won't say, gosh, that's a common name. There's an extensive biography of Dorcas, where she lived, who was her husband, what he did for a living. And and like I said, Severian says he only pretended to glance at it. After the biography is a crude map and two numbers. He says, now you see, sir, It ought to be easy enough. First number there, that's paces over from the fulstrum. Second number is paces up. So the numbers are X, Y coordinates. Mm -hmm. The word fulstrum, it was hard for me to run down independently. Luckily, Lexicon Earthus defines it as Latin for a marker. So the lake is covered (laughs) with identified markers and locations are detailed as X, Y coordinates from the marker, right? Yeah. So there's a river that flows out of the lake and an underground conduit from where the water comes in. So there's some kind of current at the bottom. And they found bodies that have drifted all the way to the river. So the bodies move around and the coordinates are not reliable. He also explains that the Averns were originally planted at the lake to control an infestation of manatees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When people would come to visit their loved ones, they'd see manatee faces bobbing in the water and it distressed them. So, and here he planted uh, the Averns to kill them when they fed at night. The guy says that they were planted in his lifetime. Apparently it didn't take long for people. Let's face it. This is an invitation to young men for young men to say, hey, let's fight with these things. And he also says they would swim in through the conduit. So, well, first of all, are manatees freshwater or are they, can they, I don't know if I'm getting too technical here, but I mean, where do these things come from? Let me look this up real quick. 
Manatees inhabit the shallow, marshy coastal areas and rivers of prefer warmer and shallow waters frequently migrate through brackish water estuaries to freshwater brackish. springs. Brackish. There you go. They like it. They don't mind. They don't mind a little bit of salt. Florida manatees can move freely between freshwater and salt water. Oh, interesting. There okay. you go. So some of them can go. Okay. Well, the reason I was wondering about what kind of water was, then we can get to questions of where this actually is. In other words, if they were only salt water, then yeah. it seems like this would not be right there in the middle of Nessus, right, right where the only stuff you have is the guile. Um, but apparently, if they can be either one, then that's that's not a clue. But anyway, the point is they're coming in. These sea creatures are coming in, and that's a long way for them to swim unless the uh, unless the guile is just chock full of manatees. Yeah, and but the question is, how much of this lake is? is otherworldly and how much is local. In other words, are these manatees coming in from someplace in this time, in this place, right. or are they coming in from some other time, yeah. other place? And I think at the very least, it's certainly there to include, to add to the strangeness of yes. where yeah, yeah. is located, <laughs> if nothing else. But it's just manatee infested waters. <laughs> don't go swimming, young man. Exactly. But it's just such a cool Wolfian thing to include here because you've already got some confusion about dead things being alive with these creatures mm -hmm. that sometimes you know are that manatees you know if anybody doesn't know they were often historically mistaken for mermaids and but then so you have people coming in and thinking they're going to go maybe pull up their preserved person and then they see somebody swimming around and, and think right it's a person yeah i mean it's just such an awesome moment of sort of confusion <laughs> and and sort of crossing lines of that yeah well we also get a description of neary here a little man he is with a wry neck and bow legs. That's the best we're going to do at this point. Mm -hmm. No monkey in relation this time. No. But a few no. times he's not apish or monkeys. Yeah. What is a wry neck? Um, that's like a thin neck. It's like a like a turkey neck. Oh, okay. Or or a chicken neck after if you plucked all the feathers. So I looked it up and and it mentioned wry neck is actually a technical name for a pain, like like having a slightly twisted neck or neck pain and stiffness with spasms. Interesting. Huh. But no, I was I was thinking rye, like rye humor. And I'm like, what is a rye oh, neck? Oh. But okay, no. People what use what does term. rye humor mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very rye. I never thought to, to look that one up. I yeah. know what it means, but I don't know why it's... Why rye, yeah. Yeah. Just, I this it struck me as just an odd description this time. But okay, but yeah. apparently not if, if it's something that's used. Okay, cool. So he's been doing this for 40 years the year after Dorcas died. He sleeps in a loft at night that is loaned by a friend he met since he started looking for his wife's body. I guess he eats, you know, one meal a day or something like that, mm -hmm. and that's enough for him. I, I first started thinking, does Owen feed him? Because there's no reference to it. I mean, maybe he, I mean, he, I mean, Owen has a job, right? So he could certainly... But yeah, it also, I mean, we know eventually that they used to be shop owners, right? Like they used to right. be not just poor. I mean, yeah, they, they, yeah. Were, they were doing quite well. They had a shop front and made luxury items, right? So, I mean. Yeah, but I'm were... thinking about that. And I think he must not have been a very good father. <laughs> because like I said, his, well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I, uh, the only thing we know is that this guy, uh, Severian's grandpa, he gets by with this, you know, just hunting for his wife's body at least as a part-time job. Yeah. He uses a grappling hook and a rope to fish for the body. He started fishing where she was supposed to be, and then he started spiraling out from there, sort of like Master Alton's reading program. 
And then after five years, he was so far away from the starting point that he started thinking, maybe I missed her. So he went back to the beginning and did it over. Five years later, he starts worrying the same thing. So now he goes back to the starting point and fishes one more time. And then he goes back to where he left off the day before. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. Like this was, I, this has always been one of the most heartbreaking things because he's basically put his life, not just on hold, but he stopped his life because the whole yeah. purpose of what he's doing is just to dig her up and see her one more time or fish her up. No, he essentially died when she did. Exactly. And it's just this this such a sad life of he he's you know filling time but it's even if he does pull her up it's not gonna really do much for him right i mean he's, yeah. he's gonna see her he's gonna have a moment but it's a way he's gonna for, close your eyes that's yeah. that's what he wants to yeah. do is close oh, your eyes so sad it's just such yeah. one of the most sad and some of these bodies he's pulled up hundreds of times but not dorcas he says she's wandering and i keep thinking maybe she'll come home that's so sad Severian says, well, why do you want to recover her body? He has this memory of the brown lake water closing over her face, her eyes shut. They glue the eyes shut. But as the water came over her face, her eyes popped open. And every night he thinks of her that way. So he wants to exhume her. And if her eyes are open, cement them down again. And if they aren't either way, you know, his last memory of her will be of them closed as if she's asleep. And of course the irony there is that, right. She's coming back. Right? Yeah. So she is coming you know, home. <laughs> oh, you know, it's everything about this just pulls at me. So, and so. the thing is he's going to be over there fishing someplace and she's pulled coming out of the water. Mm-hmm. It, they're going to just kind of just totally miss each other. Yeah. And when she finally does get back to him, he's dead. Right. Like it's right. It's, oh, it's so sad. It's just one of the most, one of the saddest things I think Wolf has written <laughs> is this section. That's true. Ajia is walking faster, so she's way ahead. Severian walks faster to catch up as the old guy kind of pulls his boat along the shoreline. Are you sure you would know her after so long a time if you found her? Severian appreciates this because when he thinks of Thecla, he remembers the blood trickling from under the door. So there's another reason he's going to recognize her. He and Dorcas had a little shop. Now, at the end of this novel, Severian will find this guy's grave. It's in the jungles of the abandoned Nessus among the omophagists, the people who eat raw meat. And the idea is that it's so dangerous there that you don't want to attract anyone's attention. So you don't cook anything. So, but actually, omophagy, eating raw meat, is associated with Dionysus worship. So unlike the uh, books of the long and short sun, I've yet to detect any illusion or personification with Dionysus. But Wolf's interest in the Orphic mysteries and the Dionysus mythology, this is the likely place where he learned this term. And those are not, I'm trying to think, because the people who live that way are not what you typically think of as like reveling Dionysian. Well, they're wild. They're, they're wild. It's definitely, yeah, it's... They've definitely gone wild, gone back to being less human yeah. more it seems more like wild out of necessity and circumstance rather than the very voluntary sort of celebratory wildness. That oh yeah. Yeah. It's not, it, yeah. It's not a happy kind. Yeah. No, I was just, one thing I was going to say too, just thinking about, sorry, I'm, I'm harping on how sad this was, but I also just read, <laughs> uh, reread for lesson, not, too long ago because uh-huh. the the gene wolf literary podcast guys were, were doing it which by the way is great their their discussion of it is really cool yeah um, i really enjoyed that oh yeah but the relationship there between for and his wife is so 
empty and even though he wants to have some kind of relationship with her there's just never any time for them to have to be personal at all and so here to see the sort of tenderness that he has for her is just quite a right quite a different thing i'm just thinking about how often wolf really has written sad stories of people who are married and um i hope it wasn't like that with rosemary <laughs> it just <laughs> didn't ever seem to be well you know it if you live with someone long enough, it's always going to be bittersweet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now this fellow and Dorcas, again, remember we're going to both be putting together eventually that Cass and Dorcas are the same ran a little shop. Apparently this shop was in the southernmost part of Nessus at the time. What the Algedonic quarter is today, right? I think that's right. If I it kind of, it's the... just as far, it, it would have to be as far South as you could be before things started going down. And then the, the, the city's gone, has just gone, uh, has moved north. Yeah. So Dorcas's father and brother, whom, as far as I know, we will never meet, invested in setting them up in a little shop on, quote, Signal Street, just past the middle, next to the auction house. He says that the building where the shop was is still there, but nobody lives in it. So I guess he's gone back there at some point to check on the place. And is that where she finally finds him? Do you think that's the same? Is that the house? You don't really get any picture of anything where you can see that, that this is Signal Street. or yeah. I mean, I, I, I would guess that's an old graveyard, right? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's because it's inside of a house where he finds her, right? Like he, Yeah, that's right. Him. Yeah, that's and a good point. Yeah. So... I bet you it I bet you're right. And they do talk about how quickly the city moves. So I mean that's that's what when he goes back is a year. I mean I suppose it well well he never says here. I mean he says nobody's there now. So it could well have been So it would have already. to have been populated at the time. I mean the time, they have a, if you have now, a yeah. shop people are coming in and out. Right. But you've got at least one generation of time to move. Right. At that point, yeah. By the way, the kind of shop they had the cloisonne work and I don't know my French is terrible or cloisonne. Cloisonne? Cloisonne, I think. Right, right. Um, her her father and her brother, they were the craftsmen who did Cloisonne. Yeah, and it's decorative work. So it's it's like I said, it's kind of a luxury thing, but the yeah. sort of gemstones. And- well, what you do is back in the day, if you were going to put gems onto uh, some sort of metal item, you couldn't just glue it. What you would do is you would put these metal wires across the the metal item in these shapes around where you're going to put the stones. And then you would set the stones within those wires, the shapes of those wires. Um, a cloison is a partition, a line of dividing. Oh, gotcha. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perhaps that's um, why this particular ancient craft attracted Wolf for Severian's family. I don't yeah, know. Could be. It's also so delicate. Like it, it definitely yeah. fits Dorcas with that sense of, exactly. you know, right. very, very small, very intricate, small working but then but you know about 200 years ago or so people began just pouring enamel colored enamel into those partitions and so that's generally i think what uh cloisonne is thought of when you think of it interesting so Severian's grandpa would go over to dorcas's father and brother's shop where they would make all this stuff and he would carry boxes of merchandise uh, home on his back and sell them in the shop it was Dorcas's job to price the items and to keep the shop clean. And they did this for almost exactly four years. And then Dorcas died shortly after their son, Owen, was born. So, you know, if we do the math, we assume 
Dorcas was 15 or 16 when they got married. If we just assume that they're, they were young because if they're setting him up in a shop, it's because he doesn't himself have any skills. And then he's the same, about the same age as her. And I would think he would have to be young. Like I said, if he doesn't seem to have any skills, the, the, the in-laws are taking care of them. Mm-hmm. And so they would be about 20 when Dorcas died. So this ancient old man could be no older than around 60. But you know, like I said, hard 60 years. And Owen, their son, and Severian's father is 40. But anyway, without Dorcas, things fell apart. We don't know when the shop stopped being a going venture, but Grandpa was permanently searching the Garden of Sleep every day for only a year after her death. Maybe he had a falling out with the in-laws. Maybe the shop was just too much for one person. But I suppose he just became unreliable. He was certainly not a reliable father. He doesn't mention his own family. So I suppose little Owen went to live with the in-laws. And he didn't learn a trade. I mean, Owen didn't. So maybe something happened to his grandfather and uncle as, you know, the part of Nessus where they lived went bad. Yeah. Honestly, one thing too, I had never thought about those other people being related to Severian, but yeah. I don't think I really appreciated till this reading that Owen's father is just a, a couple miles from wherever he is. Yeah. And just living this. Yeah. So he says it was... It was just four years that he was with Dorcas, but it was the biggest part of his life. The shop is abandoned, and so is the district where it stood. And he says, there isn't a piece of cloisonne in it, or a garment, or so much as a nail from the old shop. I tried to keep a locket and Cass's combs, but everything's gone. So is that locket, is that the one that Owen has? I think so. If he brings it up here, that's what I think. I mean, yeah, he doesn't show, say, hey, here's my locket. (laughs) But I mean, the one thing I like is that right after he says that is the next line, because the reason he's gone on this whole thing is that Severian asked, right? Like, how how do you know it's going to be her? It's been so long. And he goes on this long story basically to say, well, I've got a locket that, that I can remember her face. Right. But then the next thing he says, is, so how do I know it wasn't all a dream when nothing's dream. left? And so he still goes to the dream. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, he kind of answers, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to tack sadness on top of sadness with this one. Yeah. I mean, just how much loss is in here. Yeah. Which suggests that Owen isn't feeding him either. He's They're not aware that they live so close together. Because if Owen was close by, then he would know it wasn't just a dream. He would have some sort of physical attributes proving yeah. that she was there. Yeah. But just the way he talks about his life being over, right? It doesn't seem like he's connected. I, I, to no. me, that seems like you wouldn't really be you wouldn't connected be to anybody. In your son and, and going on. Yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah, just stop. But no, that, that point about the dream and not knowing what she would be like again. And honestly, that's kind of how Dorcas feels, right? When eventually when she comes back, that she feels mm-hmm. like she's still not real and that she's yeah. still a ghost. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. And Severian says, well, maybe it was a dream. I think you torment yourself too much. And grandpa says, I can see that despite the outfit under that mantle, you're no torturer. <laughs> you're not, you're not doing your job. But I guess that's his way of saying thank you. Yeah. I do truly wish I could ferry you and your doxy. A doxy is a prostitute, a connection he probably made based on her exposed breast. Well, he can't, but there's a guy over there that has a bigger boat. He comes to the Garden of Sleep a lot and talks to Grandpa (laughs) just the way Severian is. So this escapes me. I guess Hildegrin is coming to the Garden of Sleep 
what the fish bodies yeah that's something we'll have to talk about so he is yeah. a digger he tells us he's a digger <laughs> he's got his card but yeah. um. <laughs> so grandpa considers hildegrin a friend and tells severian that he should say that he sent them a recommendation might help Ajia is now way ahead of severian she's limping having walked a lot on the leg that she injured so he, now he's running to catch up to her, and he stumbles into the water. And for those filling out their first Severian bingo cards, <laughs> this would, in that case, be done by him. Otherwise, it's just another amazing coincidence in a highly coincidental life, because right where he falls is the body of his grandmother that Grandpa has been searching for for 40 years. The water is freezing. His mantle is dragging him down. Severian thinks, whoop, I'm drowning again. But he gets it together, and then he immediately realizes that he's dropped Terminus S. So he dives down into the icy water. The water is mixed with this fibrous stems of leaves, of reeds growing up from the bottom. And these reeds increase the risk of drowning, but they also slow the sword's descent so he can right. catch up to it. And again, those reeds are just like the nenophars with everything else. Like we're getting similar imagery mm -hmm. to Severian before of getting down there. And it's not just deep, but there's also all this other stuff right. that's keeping you under, keeping it hard to, to know what's going on. Yeah. So at about 12 or 15 feet, maybe maybe four meters, he catches up to it and he feels his hands around its onyx grip. But at that very moment, someone takes hold of his other hand. He compares it to when the, quote, tall mistress of the Pellerines, unquote, returned his sword to him at the cathedral. And he thinks, oh, this person returned my sword. Thank you, nice stranger. <laughs> Holy crap, what's the heck? It's pulling me down. And that's the end. And, and the hand grabs him, too. It's not like he brushed it and grabbed it. It's like the hand right. grabs in his hand. He grabs a sword with one hand. Someone grabs his other hand. It's interesting here, too, that we had an email that we'll, we talked about a while back where up and down seem to get confused a lot. And this is another point where up and down and sort of losing that disorientation mm -hmm. or, or getting disoriented in the moments when resurrections happen or when travel might happen. Um, or time travel. Yeah. Or time travel. Yeah. That, that we're getting that again here with the, I mean, he makes a point of saying I righted myself, but then I was pulled down and Terminus S was down and, and yeah. So there's a little hint of that going on too. I just think as a, as a neat, that's a good point. Yeah. A neat catch, but yeah. And this is another chapter where it's called Dorcas. But she actually only appears first in, in the retelling of the story. But they're and talking about her through the entire chapter. They're talking about her through the whole thing. And then she actually appears there. And the one thing, too, is that he's only ever called her Cass. And that's, to me, I mean, on rereading it, it seems obvious. But I do remember when I first read it, having to go back and check and be like, wait a minute. Could that be <laughs> the same person? Yeah, because so, so often you treat these names the way Severian does when he looks at the scroll. He doesn't, he only pretends to look at them. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. You, when you're reading a wolf story, you don't know what facts are going to come back and be important, which is why, essentially why we do it, the rereading this way. I, we try not to leave anything that might possibly be important later. Yeah. 
So I think we can probably hold off on the whole discussion of was she resurrected? Was she dead for the next time? Except we should talk about that moment where he says that her eyes opened because that's something that they do sort of discuss. There, with is, are, there are lexicon earthuses about that, whether she. Yes. So was she ever dead in the first place mm-hmm. is one. Uh, or and they even they even in the book, they hypothesize that, well, the restorative properties, maybe it just sort of kept her, you know, preserved for a while but Uh she hadn't ever really died but that's not really you know it says it turns your skin to to leather yeah i mean i don't know to me the fact that she's got the the shot inside of her i mean doesn't seem like you could yeah or shot down someone's throat and have them you know but there have been theories that you know the megatherians were trying to kill her so that she couldn't give birth to the man who would give birth to the new son and they only made her look like she was dead. And then she, um, she woke up as that she was sinking out of the water. But yeah, doesn't seem uh, I have a hard time with that because it, I don't know. I mean, the, the fact that he has her eyes open, that one is tricky to me. Like the fact that he saw her eyes. And so I don't know, did her eyes actually open? Was that just something that he thought he saw, but it's a detail that Wolf throws in there that that always did bug me. Um, everything else that they talk about, I feel like, oh, that's just a way to kind of rationalize that. Oh, no, we didn't. She didn't really get resurrected. You know, there's all this other stuff that could have happened. But the fact that her eyes open that that detail is rough. And I've always wanted to know, like, why did her eyes open? Was it just the shock of the cold water made some nervous thing? Well, I mean, as far as motivation, it does give uh, grandpa a reason to fish for her for 40 years. Mm hmm. And I don't know the fact too that she that she moved around. I mean, he does say that sometimes the bodies get lost, right? Um, but the fact that she seems to to I mean, if we take him at his word that he had actually dug every like gone constantly to every single section, then it sounds like yeah, she was moving around. Yeah, that she moved well. Yeah, and and they do move around, but honestly, rather than that she moved herself around, uh, I would rather believe that the first Severian moved him so that he wouldn't be found so that Severian could find her. And even if it, if it wasn't that I'm trying to think what else would have, what other things could be responsible for moving her around? Like was, is there some way to think that um, the Undines could have made it in here? I mean, that's one thing too, that when they say the, that there were manatees, were they actually manatees or did the Undines actually get in? and swim around what would be the motivation to do that not really sure i mean on that one i'm not i'm not exactly sure i'm just trying to think of what other things and one thing too that he's so so easily identifies that these are manatees and i wonder if instead people misidentified manatees and they were like oh there's there's giant women swimming around there you didn't really see a giant woman it's manatees who, who well i i get the idea that because of the currents and because the, the bodies do move around Unless you come back very soon after the burial, you're probably not going to find these people. I hate to be to come up with some rational, skeptical <laughs> response. I I know I'm out of my lane, but <laughs> that's really kind of what I think. Yeah, no, I think so. I probably, yeah, I mean, eventually, yeah, I, I agree too. I'm just trying to, to think about those sort of puzzling sides of it. But um, just thinking world building, the old man fits so well with the sense of sort of pointlessness that I feel like so much of mm-hmm. Nessus has, um, that it's it it fits so well with the world building. Oh, yeah, that's that a good point. So many people are living lives just like him 
in this place. Uh, that it's that he doesn't necessarily stand out as completely unusual. Yeah, he does though mention the tortures. Mm-hmm. So he says you're no torture, but it's he you know recognizes what it means. Yeah. No, no, he can tell just by seeing underneath his cloak. Again, it makes Agilis and uh, Agia kind of, they're, they're peculiar. They're peculiar for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I, like I said, I have about four <laughs> separate theories and, and stories about them, and they all <laughs> conflict or fit together in odd ways. Well, I mean, there's. I, I feel like this chapter doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of big mystery it sets us up for a lot about dorcas later on but it always has stood out to me as one of my sort of bittersweet favorites just because i've always thought that the old man and his his life was just so beautifully done in such a short amount of time he's definitely a man who's truly trapped in the past yeah severian even says he might be spell caught like other people Mm -hmm. like the people like he says if they actually did get caught in here but it's not it's totally there doesn't need to be any magic or manipulation at all. This is this is simple mm-hmm. human tragedy that happens. And uh, but it always one thing I think too is the mood of that is so different from all the craziness of the last few chapters, where everything is just totally surreal. And here the setup is kind of surreal, of like a lake that can preserve people. But it always stands out to me that this chapter is like a moment of real sort of human tragedy in the midst of after following up after all this other craziness right that it almost grounds you again i feel like um at least it felt like to me like i knew for a minute at least what was happening <laughs> when i first read it <laughs> that i could kind of relate to him um yeah and um didn't know like the one thing i wanted too was i was like well she's back why don't they go find the old man <laughs> you know <laughs> even if that's one thing that bugs me in the next couple chapters is is when they were there because certainly they made the connection between Cass and Dorcas, or did they not? I mean, no, I don't or think... when does she remember her name? I forget. Does she? Is it in the next? They don't believe that she's that she's dead. They don't, yeah, they don't believe they don't, that she's yeah. a resurrected person. I mean, yeah, I guess they don't. I guess that's right. Um, yeah, Hildegard is the one who immediately thinks, yeah, it can't be that. I mean, they they sort of bring it up as if, yeah, that that could be, but it's but it's but that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, we know too that Severian doesn't know he's got the claw on him right now, but he does. Yeah. But he does indeed. Not that it would make a difference because, I mean, he's resurrected Treskly, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Well, depending. I mean, we depending on how we think about that. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we yeah. know that, yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk more about what the claw actually does and if it is required or. It is an excellent misdirection, though, with Wolf because, oh, yeah. oh we have an explanation here. He's got the claw in his uh, saber tash. So there you go. Oh, no, yep. it turns out the oh, claw doesn't what? really do anything anyway. So. Right. <laughs> Although, and that gets tricky too, because um, as you know, is eventually the claw did have some of his blood. And so mm-hmm. it did have some connection to Severian, which could have been why. Yeah, yeah, but that's getting complicated. That's, we're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> here to, to really talk about the claw. Instead, nope, we get this, um, this origin of Dorcas where we get her backstory. No idea at all that she's connected to Severian at this point. Right. First time you read it. No one's going to put that old guy with this young girl. But yeah, instead, it's our first legitimate, full-on, complete resurrection. Mm -hmm. One that Severian really has to to face. The other Mm -hmm. ones we've talked about so far, whether it's Severian or whether it's Triskali, they're all suggested and not 
Fulham, but this is the first one that really he's going to grapple with and start to think about whether or not it really did happen, what it means if it did. Was it him? Was it the claw? Was something else going on? I did not have a curiosity with this. There's not a whole lot happens here. And although it, it seems to me there must be a curiosity earth that's about this old guy or I mean there's so many there are many stories about how you know the megatherians tried to kill his grandmother so to stop him and that she wasn't really dead they tricked him although it seems to me it would be easier just to kill her make you just look like she's dead all right all right well everybody thanks again for listening not our most dramatic chapter but still a lot of questions get raised here about Dorcas's backstory. So if you have ideas about whether or not she was actually dead or not, we're in our next chapter, they're going to really argue about that as well. But we would love to hear. As usual, you can get in touch with us in all the normal ways. Email us at rereadingwolf at gmail.com. Talk on Facebook, on the Rereading Wolf Facebook group or on the subreddit. Also find us on Twitter. And we would love to hear any comments, concerns. And as usual, always, whether it's about this one or earlier chapters, we're always happy to hear. So you certainly can jump ahead, but we haven't had a chance to really think about it. That's right. <laughs> Details. Um, but otherwise, you know, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next time with more Dorcas and Hilder. Yeah, thanks. Mind your business. Mind your business. Mind your name. Exploding, it's like I'm making poison. Nate choking on my dust with my three-line cats. You got a friend in law enforcement, don't go calling law enforcement. Business. Mind your business. Got too busy explaining. Now it's just rain and pain, pain in the form of a raindrop. Yes, a raindrop made of pain, tell the story, raindrop. I don't want to tell a mystery, tell the story, raindrop. I don't want to tell a Keep your voice down, keep your voice down, keep your window shaking, God will sick and voice down. I'm sick of this piece. like i mingled um actual stuff beep we'll start over email at we <laughs> not weird christmas <laughs> email us at rereadingwolf.gmail at uh.